Well, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're, we rejoice to be able to gather together as your people and uh, hear from your word. We, we thank you for the privilege it is to, to sit under the sound of your voice. And we pray, please, now that you would give us hearts and minds that are attentive to that word, that you would help us to reflect on it well, understand it deeply and let it shape and change us. Again, we pray this morning, please, that you, by your Holy Spirit, might work amongst us in profound and deep ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I want to offer a statement that uh, summarises much of what we uh, are going to be looking at together this morning. And the statement is this. I think it's true of life, not just uh, our time here this morning, but uh, it's a necessary thing to learn deeply. It's very hard, impossible, I think, to get God right by looking at circumstances. It's very hard, impossible, I think, to get God right by looking at circumstances. The circumstances of your life, the circumstances of others' lives. What appears to be the case is rarely the case with the things of God. When it comes to the truly important things like our relationship with Christ, uh, our life with God, our church community, the ministries of the gospel, when it comes to these truly important things, it's very hard to get them right by looking at circumstances. Now, why is this the case? There's a number of reasons why. One is we live in a fallen, sinful world. And the other is because God is surprising. God doesn't fit our categories. Now, what does it look like, you see, to see God at work? If you were to, if you were to walk into a place and you were going to go, uh, wow, I really feel God's here. You know, I, I think over 30 years of ministry, I hear that all the time. People say, you know, I went there and it just, it really felt like God. I just felt, I knew God was there. Now, how would you know that? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Um, you know, the big concern of life must be God. God, if he is who he is, the creator of the universe, the, the great I am, the, the almighty holy one over us who has made us and, us and sustains us and one day will stand before. If, if that God is true and real, as we're convinced he is, then the great concern of life must be knowing him, knowing that you're connected with him, in relationship with him. But how do you know you've met him? What does it feel like to have met the living God? What does it look like to be in a community of people who are in touch with the living God? What does it look like to have a movement of God amongst us? What's it like to have leaders who themselves are in touch with the spirit of God? Now I want to offer what I think is the most obvious sense of this that I hear regularly over the years. It goes like this, if God were among a group of people, if God, the God who flung stars into space, if he were among a group of people, if a group of people who were in relationship with him as his princes and princesses, you know, the prince, uh, the princess, the, you are a princess, if, you, if you're in a relationship with that God where God loved you like that, you were royalty to him, you were deeply loved as his child and son and daughter, you, you would know it because... Fill in that gap. You'd feel something, surely, and it would be... You'd see things happen in your life, to be in touch with the living God, to be blessed of God. What would it feel like, look like? You hear where we're going. Well, most often, our instinct tends us towards imagining that if we were in touch with this God, if we were in relationship with him and in his favour, we'd have experience of triumph, success. 
We'd have the tingles as the Spirit touched us. These are the evidences, surely, that God is amongst us. He's real. He's living. A community, as we gather in touch with this God, surely you would, you would just feel something explosive, wouldn't you? My point in all of this is we're not that good at reading God, at reading where he is and what he's doing and what he's like to know. And this is one of the great messages of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We'll come back to this again and again. If it's familiar to previous weeks, of course it will be. It'll be the theme all the way through. It's written to a church that keeps getting life wrong. It keeps getting spiritual life wrong. It keeps reading God wrong. And so they end up dismissing what they ought to embrace. They end up despising what they ought to love. And they end up loving what they ought to reject. And in this, they actually show that they may not even know the true and living God at all. For all their claims to be followers of that God, to be deeply spiritual, Paul actually is very concerned that they may not be in the spirit at all, which is a great irony. This book is a critique of our ability to read things from circumstances, to read God in the circumstances of life, in the feelings of life. And it's a God-given means to reshape our ability to read things properly. Now, I'm going to hit three things this morning where we get it wrong uh, with the hope that that might be a challenge to us, but then I'm going to actually bring it around to see how it's a great comfort to us. Two C's, I don't know if you've heard me talk about C's in preaching, but uh, it always seems to me that you've got to... The the Bible's always going to challenge you, but also comfort you. It's going to do those two things constantly. We'll get to that place together this morning. But there's three things I particularly want to pay attention to that come out of this text. Um, Now, uh, the passage we're looking at is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to take us from verse 12 only down to the end of chapter 2. We won't touch on to chapter 3 yet. We'll do that in a week to come. But I want to just touch on that first section there. And I want to take you through the context. Uh, You know, There's three things we're going to get very practical about. But let me just hold that off for a moment. Bear with me as we look at the context. Always important to anchor the Bible into its particular context and situation. And so, what's happening? Well, the church, the Corinthian church, is growing cold on Paul. Um, The circumstances of his life and his ministry are very unimpressive. And there are a new group of leaders who have come into the church at Corinth. Uh, Now, they're impressive. Paul talks about them later in this book. They're great speakers. They're spectacularly gifted They can speak in tongues, they heal and they prophesy. They're just extraordinary with the power of the Spirit coming off them, so it seems. They're powerful personalities. They're triumphant in their ministries. People swoon before them. They're the kind of person you want your friends to meet. They're just that kind of impressive, where Paul is embarrassing. This letter is written to win them back. To win them back to Paul, because to win them back to Paul is to win them back to the true gospel. It's actually to understand God himself better, it's to understand Jesus. And so it matters very deeply to Paul that they're won back. And so he writes to do this, to recalibrate how they, recalibrate how they read things, reshape how they read circumstances, do you see? Now the section we're up to continues with this theme, uh, this concern, but it also continues with a theme of pain. Do you remember in chapter 1? Paul shared with the Corinthians there in verse 8 how they were under, he was under great pressure beyond his ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Beyond the ability to endure. Paul, the apostle, the great apostle, the great spirit-filled apostle was beyond the ability to He despaired. Remember the comfort that gives you if you've actually found yourself in that same place. So was the apostle. But he continues that theme in chapter 2. 
Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for ministry, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. What's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about is the fact that um, he's, been in, he's been in Asia, which is modern Turkey, um, and that's where he had deadly peril against him. He fought wild beasts. There was such opposition to him. Uh, it was a horrible time for him. He started to move out of <clears throat> um, Asia heading over the Aegean Sea towards Macedonia. And he got to Troas, which is still in Asia, but on the way there. And when he comes to Asia, he's still living with great pressure and distress. Why? Well, because while he was in Asia, under great pressure, being battered and beaten, he wrote a letter to Corinthian, to the Corinthian group. He wrote a letter to this church that called them to account for some various things. It was a hard letter. He deeply loved them. He was concerned what was happening, but he called them to account. And he is now distressed about how they've received that letter. Whether it's severed the relationship such that they'll never be won back to Jesus properly. He's deeply anxious for them and their concern. So he goes to Troas. And he goes to Troas waiting, hoping that Titus, verse 13, might bring him news about how his letter's been received in Corinth. You see, that's why Titus is mentioned here, you see. Um, Titus has gone to Corinth to find out what's happening, was going to meet him in Troas. But Titus hasn't come back. And so Paul is just, a, he's an anxious, he's distressed. Chapter 11 talks about, he actually says he's anxious in chapter 11. He uses the same word. He has no, this is not no peace of mind in that I just feel unsettled. This is deep anxiety and concern. He's going through continued stress, you see. Um, And so despite the open door to ministry, he can't stay. And so he leaves, he crosses over into the area of Macedonia, from Troas over into Macedonia, the top part there, where Philippi is, that kind of region. Um, But then he describes, verse 14, what is true about his ministry, though it wasn't obvious. Despite all the pain and the distress and the struggle, his weakness, verse 14, he says, God has been leading him everywhere in a triumphal procession. God has been leading him in a triumphal procession. It's a powerful image, it's a really evocative image, a really clever image that Paul uses. It's an image of power and weakness all at the same time. It's extraordinary. Um, it's, it picks up the idea in the uh, kind of Roman world of an emperor who won, wins a great victory and goes back to Rome in triumph. And it's a great procession through the city uh, as he leads the army in victory and all the captives that have been uh, caught on the way through and so on. It's It's a really powerful picture. And Paul picks this up and says, that event has been my experience as I go around the ancient world. I'm on this triumphal procession with the great general leading me, God, Jesus. And yet the way he sees himself in that procession is as a captive. He's not even at the head of it. He's not the front. Um, so you've got this image that has all the marks of power and success, but he applies it to his experience of life, which has got everything but the marks of power and success. It really is an extraordinary way of carrying. Then he carries it on. He talks about how he preaches Christ uh, and the aroma of the knowledge of Christ is spread through Paul's ministry. Uh, he's focused on preaching Christ and you kept chapter 4 verse 5, Jesus Christ as Lord is what he preaches the cross of Christ, the victory of Christ. And this work is a pleasing aroma. It captures the idea of a sacrifice in the Old Testament that wafts up to God and God is pleased with the offering that's been given. And yet in all of this, 
he finds some people react hostile, in hostility towards him, some people uh, positively embrace what he does. But he gives himself, chapter 2, verse 17, ongoingly to sincerity of ministry, speaking before God as those sent from God. Now, do you see in all of this? I think it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do you see in all of this how he begins to reshape the Corinthians' thinking? Let me give you three ways in which it shapes their thinking and ours. Let me give you the first one. Guidance. Guidance. How do you work out what God wants you to do in life? How do you work out whether what you're doing is what God wants you to do? Well, one of the most common methods used and encouraged is the circumstance method. It's the idea that uh, if, I, if, I, if doors are open to me, then there's where God wants me to go. If doors are shut to me, then God... If things are hard to do, you know, if I want to move to a new place and that house falls in my lap and all the things fall into place, open door, God wants me to do it. But if I'm wanting to move somewhere and I can't sell my house and I can't buy the next house and it's all a mess, God's shutting a door, I ought not go there. Circumstantial guidance is one of the things that we use very often. Um, And if you want to therefore live the most blessed life, you watch for open doors to be, as many people say, in the centre of God's will. I want you to notice Paul the Apostle. Verse 12 again. He went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, found the Lord had opened a door for him. What should he have done, therefore? He should have walked through it. But look what he does, verse 13. He said goodbye. He didn't go through the door, he went on. He went on to Macedonia. Does that therefore mean he's no longer longer in the will of God? He's not in the centre of God's will and so his life's not going to be blessed anymore? He's going to miss out on plan A? He's going to get plan B? Well, look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always, always, always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul's read of his circumstance even as he moves into Macedonia, not going through the open door, is that he's in the centre of God's will. Blessing. Triumphal procession. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you not to bind to the notion that you're in the centre of God's will, therefore things will go well for you. It's a very common view. Being in the centre of God's will is actually walking faithfully in Christ as a Christian mature adult. It's not about what you do, it's who you are as you do it. You know, a story was told to me many years ago of a couple ministering in a very volatile uh, place in Europe. It was a very dangerous context to be in as missionaries. And the wife was really concerned, not because she was the wife, but she was very concerned. She happened to be the one who was deeply concerned about whether they'd be killed in this whole thing. The husband said, uh, as a comfort to her, we'll always be safe if we're in the will of God. We'll always be safe if we're in the will of God. And we're in the will of God because we're preaching the gospel, so we're in the will of God, we'll be safe. True or false? The problem with that is every great prophet of God throughout the history of humanity What did they do to every great prophet of God throughout the history of humanity? Killed them. Centre of God's will? Killed. What did they do to the Lord Jesus? Crucified him. It seems so wise, it has the appearance of wisdom, but it's dangerously wrong. It's dangerously wrong. 
The promise of God is security. The promise of God is that if you are the object of his love, he will keep you secure eternally. Eternally. Not, there's no promise that now you will be safe and secure, whatever you do and however you do it. Just a complete recalibration we need to go through, friends. Jesus was the suffering servant who in his earthly existence suffered, was rejected, despised, crucified. Now then resurrected, but the resurrection came after the cross. The resurrection came after a life in this world of walking through difficulties and stresses and strains and rejection. But then honoured because he stood for his father in obedience, Philippians chapter 2. What do you do with open doors when you have them? You've still got to work out what to do. You've still got to work out whether it's wise to go through or not go through. When you have a closed door, you've still got to work out whether you just need to push harder. An open door, closed door doesn't actually tell you what God wants you to do. The key isn't the circumstances. The key is having the mind of Christ having been transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans chapter 12, that we might be able to test and approve what God's will is. Do you see? The more you actually have your mind transformed by the renewing of the word of God that feeds you and feeds you, the mind of Christ begins to form more and more. So you know what God would have you do more and more. You can work out what's the, 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 the thing that would please him and honour him about your choices. Whether to go through that open door, whether to push harder with that closed door. So often, circumstance-driven Christianity, the kind of Christianity where you're driven by the open door, the closed door, whether you feel this and feel... Circumstance-driven Christianity is flighty and unstable. It flips and it flops as it pursues one thing and then another thing and chases off after this. Whereas God's purpose for us is depth, stability, substance, character, that we actually might have so, have so the mind of Christ formed in us, that Christ by his Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, that we can discern what spiritual things are, that we grow to the full measure of Christ and so that the Father delights in watching us make choices that honour and please him because it comes from a heart that's been shaped by Christ. I want to encourage us to pursue something deeper than circumstance-driven Christianity. Pursue the mind of Christ. There's the first one, guidance. See how it's recalibrating. Give me the, I'll give you the second one. Was Paul's ministry impressive and great? On the surface, according to circumstances, it looked anything but great. Everything he touched didn't turn to gold. Almost everywhere he went... He was rejected and beaten and battered, uh, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked. He gives a whole list of it in chapter 11. On the surface of things, according to circumstances, he was a failure. And the Corinthians began to measure him as such. Failure. He's the suffering apostle. We want the victory apostle. But Paul's reading, verse 14, triumph. 
a triumphal procession. And notice those words again. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Always. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Always. Everywhere. His every move around the Mediterranean was glorious, if you had the eyes to see it. Now, how can that be? How is it that Paul's ministry is so beaten, battered, weak? How come it was glorious? What made it glorious? What's the substance that gives it glory? Well, let me join a couple of verses together and see if we can pull this. Look look there at verse... um, You've got 14, triumphal procession, uh, spreading the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. What made Paul's ministry triumphal? Because he was spreading the knowledge of Christ everywhere. The aroma that was pleasing to his father. Um, But you add also, come down to verse 17. Unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. What was unique, what was wonderful, what was honourable about Paul's work is that he spoke with sincerity. He didn't do it for personal gain. Just a little alert. When you see ministers of the gospel with um, great mansions and paying millions of dollars to their families in their various ministry activities and when you, and private air, when you see that, warning bells... Now, it's not wrong to have a house. It's not wrong to have a car. But when you see that kind of excess, Paul didn't do it to peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, he spoke before God with sincerity. You come across to chapter 4 and you'll see a picture of it as well. Um, Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forward the truth plainly, We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you see the nature of his ministry? To set forward the truth plainly. To do it with sincerity of heart. To do it under the gaze of God as one who we judged by God. One who is concerned about who he is in the activity and how he does it more than the results. One is deeply concerned to please God in all that he did. That's why it was triumphant. Because everywhere he went, he was faithful in preaching the truth about Christ, not to win for himself anything, but to honour God in the way he spoke with sincerity. It was a triumph that he stuck to his task. Everywhere he went, he preached in season and out of season, faithfully bearing whatever cost to proclaim the truth of Christ. And the Father delighted in it. It was an aroma. It's interesting there. Look at verse 15. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Not the message is a pleasing aroma, but we are the pleasing aroma of Christ to God. There's a sense in which what Paul sees here is that his sacrificial, faithful servant ministry, suffering for the gospel, God looked on it and was delighted by it an aroma that rose up to his God. Do you see this deeply important shift? And I love this about church. Here we go. Brothers and sisters, what makes a church pleasing to God is not how big it is. I say that to us who are a church that's not that big, really, but larger than many. What makes God pleased is not the size of a church, 
although many converts, is wonderfully pleasing. Thanksgiving overflows to the glory of God as grace abounds more and more. Well, what is pleasing to God is the heart of the faithful servants gathered together in a place. The tiny church in the middle of nowhere where, (laughs) forgive old ladies amongst us, forgive this, right? But the tiny church, fibro, unimpressive, with a bunch of old ladies singing to a piano that's out of tune. As they do that, faithfully, sincerely before God, seeking to please him in season and out of season, God delights in it. It's not the size. It's not how impressive people are. It's not how um, trendy or relevant or cool a church is. It's the faithful, godly heart. You see, it's easy to lose this and think that, that the God of the church, the spirit church, must be an exciting church. It's easy to, to imagine that if God was in a place, it would be an exciting place to be part of. It, it would be popular, the pumping church. And that does feel captivating to the senses. If you go to a church that's pumping and exciting and popular, it feels captivating. But Paul brings a very different perception to things. And if I might just for a moment extend the application as a word to you, the wife or husband of an unbelieving spouse. This immediately comes to my mind as an application here. You might be living with an unconverted husband or wife in the most difficult of circumstances. Not that they're all, many of you might be amongst us as someone who's wrestling with the things of Christ, married to a partner who loves Jesus and you are very supportive and wonderful. But it's not always the case. And you who are living in that difficult context, it's as you are faithful, gracious, And sincere in the way you relate to your spouse, your husband, your wife. Sincerely living with him or her in the difficulties and the pain and the grief. Seeking by your life, 1 Peter 3, to be a witness to Christ. Being Christ to your family. Although you may be dismissed. Although you may always be counted as wrong and the fool in the family. Mocked and scorned for your faith. As you continue in sincerity before God, gracious and humble, loving, that is a pleasing aroma to our God. He delights in you in that difficult context. To recalibrate. Don't think the thing that's glorious to God is triumphant, success everywhere. It's who you are and how you are. There's the second. Let me give you the third recalibration. It's divisions. It's divisions. So the first one is guidance. The second one is where is the true triumph and glory of church? It's in the faithful presentation of the things of Christ. But let me give you the third. It's divisions. Did you notice the outcome of Paul's ministry? It wasn't universal acclaim. It was division. To some, verse 15... Uh, We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other an aroma that brings life. Paul's same ministry, the aroma of Christ, the, the beautiful presentation of the things of Jesus, caused some to hate and some to love. 
And notice, it caused some to hate him, verse 16, to one, we are an aroma that brings death. There's a reaction to the message, to the apostle in it all. Um, Now, on the basis of circumstances, we'd read this as a failure. Surely God is not in a ministry that brings division. Surely God is a God of love, and where there is love, there must be unity. And if God is in something, surely it must mean that everything will be positive, because love means affirmation, love means no judgment, love means everyone's united and peaceful. Surely that's what love means. But then Paul's ministry of division, is it a fail? And here's the difficult lesson for us. When the gospel of love, which it is a gospel of love, when the gospel of love has at its heart the presentation as Jesus Christ as Lord, chapter 4, verse 5, when at the heart of the gospel of love is a a proclamation that Jesus is Lord, it will always bring division. Because what's required of that message is repentance. What's required is an acknowledgement that he's Lord, I'm not. I've been wrong. I need to acknowledge my error, my mistake. I've been a sinful rebel. I need to own that, put down my weapons and come under the Lordship of Christ. And that will always divide because that gospel comes to people who are rebellious at heart. It's a command that says, lay down your weapons Bow the knee to him. How can that not divide? But this news is the beautiful aroma of life to some. Because some see so evidently their sin. And are so grateful for a God of love and forgiveness in Christ the Lord who has actually died to pay for us. So that by Jesus' death we can be forgiven. Some people find this a delight as we do. You know, Billy Graham had a very, very helpful illustration that's wrong, but really good. And I want, I want you to see if you can work out where it's wrong. Bill, it was a great, he's a very, he was very, listen to what he says. He says, when the sun, S-U-N, shines on butter, it melts it. When it shines on clay, it hardens it. That's a great illustration, isn't it? The sun's the same. But when it receives, when it shines on different substances, butter melts, clay hardens. And his point is, as you deliver the beautiful aroma of Christ to a world, some hearts will melt, some hearts will harden. Same message. It's a beautiful illustration. Where's it wrong? We're all clay. clay. Oh, Andrew, you're so quick. (laughs) We're all clay. That's right. The the problem with the illustration is we've only got a butter heart. Because God first softens our heart. There's a sense in which we're all clay until the Lord God graciously softens us. But the point, the illustration is still a wonderful one. The same message of the aroma of Christ has different impact on different hearts. How do we judge a ministry? How do we judge a ministry as truly the work of God, the Holy Spirit? Well, the circumstantial assumptions we bring is that if God is a God of love, he'll bring everyone to love each other and the community will be loving of the church and it'll all be wonderful and good. And if there are divisions, surely it can't, it's probably a bad ministry. It's not a good ministry. But that's, that, is, that is to misread things, do you see? It's to read things on circumstances. And it's a terrible... Uh, look, do you know there's a little saying doing the rounds in the last bunch of years called love is love? Love is love. 
the little thing about that, the power of that statement is love is love. Whatever people view as love for them, that's love for them. Let's not judge each other. Whoever, however they express their love, that's loving. Let's just get on and love each other. And so if a church is to be a loving church, it's to endorse everyone's view of love and we all just love and enjoy and there's no judgment, there's no division. But that cannot be right, can it? Love is love, is love always love? Think with me. Are there any expressions of what people think to be love that isn't actually love? Pedophilia. The love of a child. Is love love? Are there no boundaries to love? Is there no shape to it? Is there no place that we can judge whether love is not love? Totally. Well, as long as it's consenting love, that makes it love. No. A child can't consent. We're aware of that. There's a power imbalance, which is why it's absurd to think of the transgender thing and say that a child can consent to having their whole body. If you didn't pick up Monday night, chase up the, the, um, the, the recording of it. But love is not love. It's been foisted on us. We've got to rethink these things. We're in a confused world. Break free from cultural circumstances that shape us and the way we read things. Years ago, many years ago now, I think it was the 1960s, the, um, the, the Pope, the Catholic Pope visited Australia. And uh, when he came to Australia, it was a great moment in, in our world and um, he invited all the religious leaders of the, the, the Australian context to come and have a prayer meeting with him to share in prayer. The, 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 you know, the Anglicans, the Catholics, the Baptists... The, the, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, all were invited to come and pray in a great unifying experience and event. The Archbishop of Sydney at that time uh, refused to go. He wouldn't be part of this prayer meeting. How do you think the Sydney Morning Herald portrayed that? How do you think Christian communities portrayed it? There was a great outcry against him. As not a man of love, as divisive, he was the Pope trying to bring unity, let's all come together. And, and he said, no, I can't be part of that, and I refuse to be part of that. And there were great, great hostilities in churches as churches turned on their archbishop and said, what we don't want that. It's making it very hard to evangelise my friends that you've taken that stand because they actually think our church is divisive and not very loving and so on. Did he do the right thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because to meet into that context would be to affirm, to suggest that all paths lead to God. That Jesus is just one way. That there are many different ways to approach and connect with God. And, and the very essence of the message of Jesus is, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he took a stand on that and said, I, I have to, I have to honour God above please you and you know what at great cost to himself and at great cost to the growth of the church at that time he he lit a flame in a generation of young men and women to love Jesus to stand for Jesus no matter the cost what a powerful testament to the things of Christ we need to recalibrate division isn't evidence of a failed ministry Though sometimes it can be, because sometimes it's evidence of lack of nuance, black and white, harshness, 
exasperate. Sometimes it can be divisive, is an evidence of lack of spirit. But not always. The mind of Christ helps us discern which is which. Let me finish. Do you remember the two C's? Challenge and comfort. The challenge this morning is this. To, to, to actively let the Bible recalibrate our superficial judgment of what's God, what's not God, how God's showing himself, how he doesn't. To let the Bible actively recalibrate. The way we think about guidance is very often shaped by a superficial understanding of circumstances. No, the Bible challenges that, re- refreshes that. The way we think about triumphant ministry and what a triumphant spirit ministry would look like is so often shaped by our own natural sense of things, spectacular, exciting, trendy, cool, popular. And the Bible says, no, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, recalibrate what's triumphant. Weakness, faithful, godly, humble service, triumphant. And lastly, to recognise that divisions aren't always evidence of a lack of the Spirit of God and the love of God. It's often a necessary evidence of the work of the gospel going forward in power. There's the challenge to us, to recalibrate. The final thing, though, comfort. Brothers and sisters, whatever your circumstance, I want to encourage you that what matters most is who you are and how you do what you do, not how successful you are at it. What matters most is that you bring sincerity of heart before God in whatever you do. Like Jesus, like the Apostle Paul. That you be someone who speaks the truth in love. That you learn to to shape your character and be formed. To be a person who humbly and faithfully presses on in sacrificial service. The comfort that who you are is the measure. Not what you achieve and not all the difference you make and not all the... Who you are. That's what God's about, is reshaping you from the inside. But lastly, I think there's comfort in this, that as you begin to free yourself from living by circumstances and actually free yourself to be for, have the mind of Christ formed in you, to be able to discern by the mind of Christ what's true, what's right, what's good, what's bad, you'll come to stability. Your life will stabilise. You'll be able to set on a course and stick to it. For your sake, for the people around you's sake, you'll be able to persevere faithfully. Stability. It's Christian maturity at its best. Ephesians chapter 4, then you'll no longer be like the wind of the, the waves of the sea, tossed back and forth. You'll come to stability in the things of Christ when you actually recalibrate and let the scriptures reform and reshape the way you think about life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might work these wonderful things in us, that you might help us recalibrate, help us, help us to see through uh, superficial judgments and help us bring the mind of Christ to the things we see and do. Help us to be people of character and substance and help us therefore find the stability that comes in that life. We pray for your glory and your honour in our lives that might be transformed and changed to please you. In Jesus' name. Amen.